2 Kings chapter 6. Can everybody hear me? Okay. 2 Kings 6. Our sin often drives us to desperation. We sin, we do things, and, and because of that, we suffer the consequences of sin, which is very painful. There's a lot of stuff up here. And uh, as a result, we suffer these consequences, and we bring it on ourselves. But God is a God of grace, thankfully, and he shows mercy upon us even in our desperation, even as we've done things we should have never have done, and despairing because of it, desperate because of it, he is, is gracious to us anyway. We're going to see that in 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7 tonight. We're going to focus on three realities. The first is this, divine punishment and human desperation. Divine punishment and human desperation is the first reality we see. Look at chapter 6, verses 24 to 27. Now it came about after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. There was a great famine in Samaria. Behold, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth of a calves, a cab of a of dumb, dove's dung rather was for five shekels of silver. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help, my lord, O king. He said, If the Lord does not help you, from where shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? There's been an unspecified amount of time that passes between verse 23 and 24. Uh, previously, the Aramaeans, the Syrians, may be translated in your Bible. They have made raids. They've made individual raids into the country of Israel. Uh, they're called marauding bands of verse 23 of the Nazbi. Not yet a full-scale war, but just coming in and raiding the territory every once in a while, plummaging some of the goods, seeing what they can get out of people, that kind of thing. But verse 24, sometime is elapsed now, and it says this, Now it came about after this, same king, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. He besieged Samaria. Aram's no longer playing games with Israel. This is becoming, over time, more and more an incursion into the country. Now they're attacking the heart of the country, Samaria, it's the royal capital of the northern kingdom. It's, it's like if it was in America, this would be an attack on Washington, D.C. So he's at the heart of the country. He's attacking it. Things aren't bad enough already. There's another problem associated with this, usually associated when a, when a, when a country or an enemy in the Old Testament besieged another country. A lot, it would take a long time usually. And a lot of that, and what would result would be famine a lot of times. And so there was another problem. There's a famine that hits. Verse 25 calls it a great famine in Samaria. And so things can't get much worse at this point. You have, you're being attacked. You're under attack militarily. Now imagine this. We were being attacked militarily. And then we had a problem with food. We couldn't find food to eat. We're hungry. We're starving to death. How bad is it? Well, look at verse 25. It says that it was so bad, a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth of a cab of doves dung for five shekels of silver now you look at that and you say well what does that mean <laughs> doesn't sound pleasant does it but there's several troubling thoughts about this statement first of all the shortage of food we see from that statement the shortage of food is so severe in light of the famine in light of the the uh, besieging of the city the military attack that the people of samaria are reduced to eating that which is unthinkable things they would have never eaten in their entire life now they resort, they, they're, they resort to eating these things, things like they're eating heads of de dead donkeys. They're eating the dung of doves. Now, 
you know, again, 21st century America, as I've told you. We, we don't even understand this at all. We've never been anything, anything like this to where it's been so desperate we're having to, to do this. You know, we're, we live in the land of the free and home of the brave. We, we're privileged here. We're hungry. You know, when the refrigerator's a little low or maybe even empty, what do we do? We run down to Publix, right, or Walmart or wherever we go, Aldi, if you're us. <laughs> we're low on food right now. You know, if I run out of bananas, I'm in a panic at the house. I love bananas. Where's the bananas at, you know? Your grandchildren probably ate them, but to be in a situation in life where you're happy just to make your next meal out of donkey's head or dove's dung, that's desperation. That's a desperate condition. The thought of eating either of these is beyond me. And the nutritional value, think of that, practically nil. What, what can you get out of a donkey's head? How much can you even eat of that? That's just so bizarre to me. Basically, you're eating rations. And when you get through, you're going to be hungry. You're not going to be full. You're still going to be hungry. So you're always hungry in this situation. They're under attack. They're hungry all the time. You can see this would create all kinds of problems. Imagine you being hungry all the time and never being able to get full or having a hard time getting food. Secondly, the price of these pathetic meals is sky high. That's what he's saying here. It's outrageous. This has happened many times in history, by the way. When you have a military battle, you can have inflation rise to insane levels. You can have problems with food and getting food and so on. You can imagine that. For example, listen to this. <laughs> this is fascinating to me. Back in the Civil War in 1865 in Richmond, Virginia, the signs on the stores, because they were having this war, it was devastating the country financially. They are having this war. Signs on the stores lifted, listed the prices of food items. Here they were. This is 1865. Bacon, $20 a pound. Now, I looked up what a pound of bacon costs today, and what I found on the Internet, correct me if I'm wrong, was bacon is averaging $6.11 a pound right now. Now, this year, 1865, $20 a pound for bacon. Live hens were sold for $50 each. Beef, $15 a pound in 1865. Butter, $20 a pound. You can imagine the horrors, of, of, of the financial horrors these people faced back then. This, in wartime, this can happen. This is the kind of thing that happens. And it happened in Samaria. 80 shekels of silver for a dog, he said, to show you how absolutely insane that price is. Let's compare it to something else that was sold in that day. The price of a live horse in that day. To sell a live horse, 1 Kings 10.29, they sold a live horse for 150 shekels of silver. 150 shekels of silver. Here you have the dead, the dead the head of a dead donkey, head of a dead donkey, sold for just over half that amount, just over half the amount of a live horse. That's ridiculous. A dove's dung would cost what a laborer would make in six months just to get the dung to eat because they couldn't find food to eat. It's how desperation. You know, you have to wonder also how people could rip each other off in this situation, but they do. We know how people do, right? That's human nature. There's something else going on here. In this, according to Leviticus 3, you, you're not if you're an Israelite in God's economy, you're not supposed to eat a donkey. That's an unclean animal. And yet, here they are in their desperation, doing just that. That's not all. The king of Israel, we read, he's walking along the wall, probably trying to see what's going on the city wall. As uh, Aram outside is trying to get in and bash the wall and these kind of things, he's walking by the wall. A woman recognizes him as the king and cries out for his help. You're the king of Israel, help me. 
He says, basically, I'm as helpless as anybody else is here. I can't do anything. Basically, he says, only God can help you now. And so in these circumstances, he's pretty much on target. That's true. You know, if we, if we can help someone out, if we can help someone out, we should. We should try. Sometimes it's beyond our resources. Sometimes we can't, we can't do it all. Only God can help us out certain circumstances. But I'm sure that that woman felt like, of all people, the king can help, right? I mean, doesn't the king just snap his fingers and people run and do his bidding? Isn't that how it works? That's what she's thinking. You know, let me tell you something. God has ordained government, Romans 13. He's ordained government. Yes, that's his idea. And this king is representative of government here, but the government was never meant to, to meet all of our needs. And they can't meet all our needs. It's impossible for them. They can't fix every dilemma that comes up. They can't do it. This king is absolutely correct. He speaks for all governments because though they may try, <laughs> they can't do it. It's impossible for that to happen. They have their place ordained by God, yes. They're expected by God to carry out their duties, yes, Romans 13, other verses. But they can't do it. And don't mistake, ever mistake the government for the Lord, by the way. The government's not the Lord, all right, that you depend on for your every need. He's not that either. Even the king says here, I can't help you. Where do you expect me to get help from, the, the threshing floor or the wine press? The, wine, the threshing floor is where they process their grain. He says, he's saying, there's no grain here anywhere. There's no wine. We don't have anything. The, the resources are all depleted. We're in a famine here. Food supply is exhausted. We're in desperate condition. But just when you, could, just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, look at verses 28 and 29. <clears throat> Chapter 6 of 2 Kings 28. The king said to her, what is the matter with you, woman? She answered, the woman said to me, that, this woman said to me, she points to another one, give your son that we may eat him today, and we'll eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him, and I said to her on the next day, give your son that we may eat him, but she has hidden her son. Now we go from famine to cannibalism. This is the horror of war. This is truly shocking, but this has happened at different times in history. This has actually happened. It's nevertheless horrifying. This is human desperation at its very height. The couple, that a couple of mothers, mothers of all people, would, would, have, would resort to this atrocity of, of this. It's just absolutely mind-boggling, but I guess, again, we shouldn't be surprised. Why do I say this? You think about the history of Israel at this time. They've spent for years <laughs> disobeying the Lord. They've forsaken him. They've practiced idolatry again and again. They don't think in terms of living for him. They think in terms of living for themselves. And so the Lord has been patient with them. Very patient is our Lord. However, there's a time when his patience ends, and he says, enough is enough. And so he sends a judgment upon them. The siege that's happening, yes, Aram is doing this. The famine that is happening was foretold years long, long ago in the history of Israel. If you look back in Leviticus 26, if you get a chance, read Leviticus 26, read Deuteronomy 28, and you will see that among other things, the Lord said, if you disobey me and you don't do what I've, I've said to do, I'm going to allow enemies to attack you. I'm going to allow your city to be besieged. <clears throat> I'm going to allow famine to come your way and, and more, many more things. So Israel has brought this upon themselves. They have no one to blame but themselves. Now notice the reaction of the king in verse 30. He says, or it says there, when the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. He's beside himself. She told him this. Now, he was passing by the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. 
doors closed and people revealing sackcloth beneath on his body. It's a sign of mourning. That's a sign of humility before the Lord. People did that. They wore sackcloth, very rough, coarse garment to, uh, to, as a sign of repentance, a sign of, remorning, of mourning, these kind of things. Humility, seeking God. Is this seeking God? Is this repentance? Is the king, uh, you know, is the king doing this? Is he seeking God and trying to get right with God? That's what it looks like on the surface. The king at this time is Jehoram. Uh, in 2 Kings 3, 1 and 2, we find out that he's the son of who? He's the son of Ahab. And it says there that Jehoram did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not to the extent of his father and mother. He still practiced idolatry. Not as bad as his father and mother, nevertheless still an idolater. But if you read about this guy in chapter 3 of 2 Kings 3, chapter 8, now you're going to see this is the kind of guy that, you know, if he can get the Lord's help, he's, he's more than happy to take the Lord's help. In fact, in chapter 5, the Lord did help him in battle against Aram. And he was more than happy to take that help. Great for the, grateful for the help. So if it's to his advantage to wear sackcloth, and maybe he's, des he's desperate, obviously is desperate. Hey, maybe I'll try wearing sackcloth. Maybe I can try to, you know, get God to look at me and maybe accept me. And if, if he can get the Lord to help his cause, he's going to do it. But if not, this is how Jehoram thinks, then maybe he'll take it out on the people of God. Look at verse 31. Then he said, after he, after he hears this story from the woman, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. In other words, God, I hope he calls a curse from God upon him, unless he beheads Elisha the prophet. Now, isn't that oxymoronic? He's calling upon God, and yet he's willing to kill the prophet of God? This is kind of the, the reasoning, the way people rationalize these things. It's all twisted. You know, when people, when things are going bad for people, <clears throat> when they're going bad because they follow their own course of action, because they've gone their own direction, because they've done whatever they wanted to do, because they were half-hearted about serving the Lord, because it was yes one day and no the next day to serving God, and things don't go their way, what happens? They normally do what? They get angry, right? And where's their anger focused at? It's focused at God or the people of God, right? That's where it's focused at, or the representatives of God, or the preacher, right? Let's get mad at him, or the prophet in this case. Have you ever noticed people doing this? This is what happens often. People live in total disregard of God. They don't follow his direction. Their lives fall apart, and guess what? They figure it's God's fault now that this happened. They don't blame themselves. It's God's fault. You know, they, ne they never had even considered God until they got into trouble, and now, wait a minute, we've got to blame somebody. Oh, it can't be me. It must be God. He's at fault. And they're, but now they're desperate. They place the blame on him. They place the blame on his people. So the king of Israel is angry because he's under siege, because he's in a famine, because some people have even resorted to cannibalism. This is really tough stuff here. And he comes to this one conclusion. There can only be one answer to this thing. The man of God is somehow responsible for this. Kill him, right? Let's execute him. You know, God cannot be blamed for the sins of Israel. That's their fault. That's their fault, not his fault. They're the ones that did it. He's got rules to follow in his life. We break the rules, guess what happens? We pay the price, right? That's what the scripture says again and again. You know, it's like Proverbs 19.3. I love Proverbs 19.3 because this describes this situation accurately. The foolishness of man, think about this. Proverbs 19.3, the foolishness of man ruins his way. Man ruins his way. Why? Because he's a fool. He does foolish things. And his heart, yet his heart rages against the Lord. He ruins his way by his foolishness, and yet 
he blames it on God. He's mad at God because of this. That's what the scripture says. I love what Matthew Henry said about this. He said about the king of Israel, the king lamented the calamity, but he did not lament his own iniquity, nor the iniquity of his people. And that was the cause of the calamity. He didn't, he didn't lament that at all. So he wanted to behead Elisha. Matthew Henry also says this, Elisha's head is the most innocent and the most valuable in all Israel. And yet, that's the one the king wants to, to kill, to put away, to behead. He wants to put an innocent man to death, just like uh, the king, King Ahab, wanted to put innocent Elijah to death. Same thing. You know, back in the first century, in the Roman Empire, the cry for many Romans was, away with the Christians to the lions. Let's kill the Christians. It's their fault, right? Everything that's happening is their fault. This is all wrong. They're always the problem. Why, you know, they're always blamed for everything. In 64 AD, the city of Rome, a large part of the city of Rome was burned, destroyed by a fire, and the people of, of the uh, city of Rome thought, it's Nero, the emperor. He started this fire, and they blamed him. But Nero said, wait a minute, I need a scapegoat. I've got to pass the blame to somebody else. So what did he, who did he blame? Who do you think he blamed? The Christians, right? He blamed the Christians. The, uh, Tacitus, this guy who's a Roman historian, said this. Tacitus writes, Accordingly, an arrest was made. They, they arrested people. And an immense multitude of Christians was convicted, not so much of the crime of, crime of burning the city, but of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to the deaths of the Christians. They covered them with skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or they were nailed to crosses, or they were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. You blame God, right, for your sin. You blame the people of God, not yourself, right? That's what people do. So the king sends him, and that's what's happening here. It must be Elisha's fault. So the king sends a messenger to Elisha. Look at verse 32 and verse 33. Now Elisha was sitting in his house. The elders were sitting before him, and the king sent a man from his presence. But before the messengers came to him, he said to the elders, Do you see how this son of a murderer has sent to take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door shut against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? While he was still talking with them, behold, the messenger came down to him and said, Behold, this evil is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Now, you look at this scene here. And all these elders of the city, they're not sitting before the king asking for his advice. What do we do in this situation here? They're sitting before who? They're sitting before the prophet Elijah, probably asking for his advice on what to do. Things are so desperate. They realize, hey, this guy's the guy with the answers, not, not the king. He doesn't know what's going on here. You know, that's what I'd be doing in this situation. I'd be going right into Elisha anyway and say, what do we do about this? And Elisha has the prophetic gift, right? He knows what, th what, things are, what, ki what kings are saying, even in their bedroom, chapter 5 says, right? He knows this. The king, he knows about the king's threat. He knows the king is threatened to kill him, behead him. And so he says to the, he calls the king the son of a murderer. Why does he do that? Because his father Ahab was a murderer, right? Remember that? Ahab murdered Nabal, cold-blooded murder. And he says, this son is no better now. It shows what low spiritual esteem Elisha holds the king in. He knows Elisha knows well the, bankrupt, the spiritual bankruptcy of Ahab's family. He knows how they are. So he says this, and he says to the elders, bar the door, <laughs> shut the door, hold it closed so this guy can't come in. Now, what, it, what it happens exactly in verses 20, 32 and 33 is somewhat fuzzy, but 
But Elisha says, Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? In other words, the king is going to be there shortly after the messenger he sends. Why? I don't know. It doesn't say. It doesn't tell us that. And then in verse 33, the messenger speaks to Elisha. Now, whether he got in the door or whether he's shouting through the door, or some have said, I have no idea either. I don't know. But nevertheless, what's important is the message. Here's the message from the king. It was all said and done. The messenger is this, says this, Behold, this evil is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Now, he doesn't carry out his threat to kill Elisha. Why, I don't know. It doesn't say. He changed his mind or something. It's anybody's guess, but the king's message to Elisha clearly shows he's exasperated. It could be Elisha. It could be this, that Elisha had instructed the king to wait on the Lord because he says, why should I wait for the Lord any longer? He tells that to Elisha. Why should I continue to wait for the Lord to save us out of this disaster? Why? I've been doing this. Nothing's happening, right? The king knows this for sure. He knows this is the judgment from God. He knows it. He knows this. He probably knows it from Elisha. He calls it an evil from the Lord, this evil from the Lord, this judgment from God, this misery is upon us because God has sent it. <clears throat> That's why he's wearing sackcloth. Maybe God, maybe he can gain the favor of God if he goes through the motions. But now the king says, hey, I've, already, I've tried it. I'm no longer going to wait for the king. Uh, no, rather, I'm no longer going to wait for, the, for God to rescue us from this evil. It's like he's saying this, this whole business of repentance and seeking God and trying to get right with God. And all this hasn't changed anything at all. I'm giving up on this. It hasn't worked. It's not working, so I'm going to give up. Have you ever done that? Have you ever done that? <clears throat> You've lived in disobedience to God. You've made bad decisions. You've made unbiblical decisions. You have, you have, and then you, you were suffering because of this, and then you tried, you tried God, right? You tried repentance. People say, try Jesus. You ever anybody say that? Try Jesus? No, we don't try Jesus, okay? We either... Take him as our Lord or we don't, one of the two. You tried repentance, and you thought, well, it doesn't work. This, this is not working. Uh, so what you're trying to do is, 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 is get a favorable outcome from yourself, you see. You're trying to get a favorable out, the outcome you want. <laughs> and if you don't get the outcome you want, then you say, well, this whole God thing's not working anyway. So you give up on it. I'll move on to some other solution here. That's not how this works, folks. Again, we're going to suffer for our unbiblical decisions, our unbiblical actions. We're going to suffer for these things. We should still get right with God. We can't lay the blame on somebody else. If I sin, it's my fault. I have to own up to it. So divine punishment and human desperation go together. The second reality, divine promise and human doubt. Divine promise and human doubt, chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> Elisha said, listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. The royal officer on whose hand the king was leaning answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord should make the windows in heaven, could this thing be? Then he said, Behold, you're going to see it with your eyes, but you will not eat of it. In the midst of all this desperation, it's very desperate, by the way, as you can see, we have a word of hope because it's the word of God. The word of God comes to these people in this desperate situation through the prophet Elijah, basically Israel doesn't deserve this. The king doesn't deserve this. Uh, nobody does here, but God, in his mercy, gives a promise. He gives a promise of hope that is amazing. Basically, what he says in verse 1 is this. He says, in so many words, in about 24 hours, things are going to turn around. They're going to, the inflated prices are going to come down. You're going to be eating food like barley and flour. It's all going to be, things are going to get much better. You're going to be blessed. This is a word of hope. 
in the midst of desperation. This is great news, right? Good news. <clears throat> but the king's, in verse 2, the, the king's right-hand man, the royal officer, he's not impressed. He doesn't believe the word of God. He says, really? You think God's really going to do this thing? He's really going to open the windows of heaven? This is really actually going to happen? He rejects the word of God outright. He doubts it. It's unbelief. So Elisha pronounces judgment upon, upon him because of his rejection of the word of God. That's why. Outright rejection. And he says, you're going to see the food. You individually are going to see the food, but you're not going to eat it. You're not going to eat it. Isn't that what a Christ-rejecting world does to us? We tell them the word of God. We tell them the good news of the gospel. We tell them that Christ died. We tell them that Christ was buried. We tell them that Christ rose again. We tell them that the Lord is the Lord of salvation. And they say, we don't believe that. How could that be? How could that be? And they turn around and they turn their back on it. They reject it outright. But Jesus said that the same word that offered them hope would condemn them. Did you know that? John 12, 48. Jesus said this. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one that judges him. What is that that judges them? The word that I spoke is what will judge him in the last day. That word that I spoke is going to judge him. The word of hope, which, was, which is believed and acted upon, that's going to bring blessing to people. But the word of hope, which is rejected, which is discarded, which is, uh, which is, un, is not believed, that's going to bring judgment upon people. And so his own words seal, seal his fate. He is filled with doubt. He's filled with unbelief. <clears throat> and God pronounces judgment upon him. Thirdly, there's divine intervention and human deliverance. Divine intervention and human deliverance. It's in chapter 7. Look at verses 3 to 8. <clears throat> now, in light of these circumstances. Now, there were four leprous men. I love these guys, by the way. These four guys are tremendous. <laughs> there were four leprous men at the entrance to the gate. And they said one to another, a great statement, Why do we sit here until we die? For the more poetic King James why sit we here till we die? If we say we will enter the city, then the famine is in the city and we will die there. And if we sit here, we're going to die also. Now, therefore, come and let us go over to the camp of the Aramaeans. <laughs> go over there. If they spare us, we're, we will live. If they kill us, we will but die anyway. They, arise at, they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Aramaeans. And when they came to the outskirts of the camp of the Aramaeans, behold, there was no one there. For, this, for the Lord had caused the army of the Aramaeans to hear a sound of chariots, a sound of horses, even the sound of a great army. So they said one to another, Behold, the king of Israel is hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Therefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their donkeys, even the camp just as it was, and fled for their life. When these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they entered one tent, and ate and drank and carried from their silver and gold and clothes and went and hid them. And they returned and entered another tent and carried from there also and went and hid them. Gotta love this story, right? God delights to use the base things of the world, by the way, 1 Corinthians 1 says. He, the things that are despised, God uses to bring to naught the things that are strong, right? There's a book entitled, I don't know if you've ever read this, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. I think I had to read it at some point or, or another, but I don't even remember the book. But instruments in the Redeemer's hands. This is what God's people are. We're instruments in his hands, right? But, but in this chapter, we have unlikely instruments in the Redeemer's hands. These guys are about as unlikely as you're going to get as far as God using people to do his work. Here they are, four lepers. And uh, they're, they're hanging out at the city gate because they have 
nowhere to live. I mean, they're lepers, right? They're, they could contaminate people. They're considered unclean. Probably stayed near the gate to beg for food. They're not supposed to be, you know, around people and all this. You remember naming the leper, by the way, the Gentile in, in uh, the previous chapter? You know, he was healed of his leprosy. Luke 4, think about Luke 4 again. It says that there were many lepers in the time of the prophet Elisha, but none of them were cleansed except Naaman the, the Syrian, it says. So these four guys were part of the lepers that were not cleansed by Elisha. He didn't go to Israel. He went to a Gentile, pagan nation, to have that guy healed because it was a judgment on Israel. And so, but these guys are lepers still. They've never been cleansed, but they're going to become very important in this whole scenario here. Out of all people, of all people, these four lepers decide to take the initiative. That's what's amazing about this. They figure, what's there to lose, right? We're going to die anyway. Everybody's starving to death over here. Hey, we got an idea. Why don't we go over to the Aramean camp? Surely they have food over there. Who knows? <clears throat> Maybe we'll get somewhere. Maybe they'll spare us. Look at verse uh, 3. <clears throat> I love the phrase, why do we sit here until we die? You know, there's many Christians who need to ask themselves that question, by, by the way, right? They don't ever get involved with anything, right? They don't ever get involved. They don't ever take initiative to serve God at all, period, do nothing at all. They could ask themselves that question, why do we sit here until we die? Kind of just sitting around all the time, right? Not doing anything. But these guys venture out, and to their astonishment, they find no one home but an all-you-can-eat buffet. They're starving to death. They've had this famine. There's no food. Can you imagine to their, their, their good fortune they see? They go into a tent. Look at all this food. Let's chow down, right? And so they eat like crazy. And then they grab a lot of other stuff, too. Why not? There's a bunch of stuff here, expensive stuff. Let's grab this while we're at it. Let's hide it so no one can find it. It'll be ours, right? Was this just a stroke of good luck on their part? Is that what it was? Well, look at verse 6. It gives the answer. For the Lord had caused the army of the Aramaeans to hear a sound of chariots sound of horses, even the sounds of a great army. So they said to one another, Behold, this is what the Aramaeans said, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites, the kings of the Egyptians, to come upon us. They took off and ran. This is nothing other than divine intervention. Intervention by God. The Lord caused this to happen, it says. The Lord caused it to happen, so they heard a sound that sounded to them like there's an army approaching, or for that matter, two armies are approaching, probably the Hittites and the Egyptians. Very loud sound. You can imagine, the, how loud do you think this was if you thought two armies were approaching you? The thundering uh, hoofbeats of the horses and so on. It's got to be a huge sound. Think about that for a minute. With such a loud sound, why didn't the lepers in the gate hear this? Why didn't the people of Samaria hear hearing this noise? Nobody heard this except for one group, the group that God intended it for, and that is the Aramean army. That is who, that's who God intended it for. That's the Lord's intervention, right? It's strategic, his intervention. It is targeted, it's expected, unexpected rather, but it happens. Let me ask you a question. Can the Lord intervene in our lives? Can he intervene in your life? He can and he does. Remember when in the first century he intervened in the, in the earth in a great way? What happened? Jesus came, right, to the earth. That's God's intervention. He intervenes through his providential working in your life. He brings about providential circumstances in your life that cause you to realize God is working here. Think about that. He intervenes through prayer. You pray, and God intervenes through prayer. He intervenes in ways we don't, we don't even expect. Didn't even expect that to happen. And we heard some testimonies this morning about this. 
Why? Why did this happen? Because Mike is doing what? Trying to adopt a child, which is the will of God for, at least it's the will of God for us to care for orphans, right? We don't all have to adopt a child necessarily. But to care for orphans and widows is all throughout the scripture, right? So do you think God's going to bless something like that? Yes. And so God can intervene in our lives. You know, the Bible does not teach deism, the view that says God created the world and left it to run on its own. So you're on your own now, folks. It's all over. I'm not going to be here anymore. Because that would deny the power of God. He's still around. He's still involved in this world, very much so. He's involved in our lives. And once again, he uses the least likely of people. These four lepers, amazing. As he can use anybody here, by the way, to do his purpose, to do his work. Look at verse 9. They said one to another, the lepers, they're hiding their goods, they're getting their food, they're eating their food. Can't blame them. They said one to another, we are not doing right. <laughs> this day is the day of good news. We are keeping silent. If we wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city, and they told them, saying, We came to the camp of the Arameans. Behold, there was no one there, nor the voice of man, only the horses tied and donkeys tied and the tents just as they were. The gatekeepers called and told it within the king's household. Then the king arose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you now what the Arameans have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone from the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, When they come out of the city, we will capture them alive and get into the city. One of his servants said, Please, let some men take five of the horses which remain, which are left in the city. Behold, they will, in any case, be like all the multitude of Israel who are left in it. Behold, they will, they will be, in any case, like all the multitude of Israel who have already perished. So let's send and see. They took, therefore, two chariots with horses, and the king sent after the army of the Aramaeans, saying, Go and see. They went after them to, to the Jordan, and behold, all the way was full of clothes and equipment which the Aramaeans had thrown away in their haste. Then the messengers returned and told the king. Now, the lepers have struck gold. They know it. They know they, got, they, know they found something. This is a big find, like finding a treasure. They know it. But their conscience begins to bother them. They say in verse 9, <clears throat> we're not doing right. <laughs> this isn't the right thing to do to keep it to ourselves. It's always a good thing when your conscience bothers you, by the way, about, good, about things that are right. <laughs> and they made a second great statement in verse 9 that we should, <clears throat> we should think about. We're not doing right. And it could be that we're going to be punished. Now, whether that's human or divine, I don't know. But they, they get it, right? They get it. They make the right choice, the self-conscious choice, not to be selfish. Not to be selfish, but to share with others. And they share their good fortune with others. I don't know about you, but I'm impressed with these four guys. We do well to follow their lead in some ways. But they decide to give this information to the gatekeepers, probably because, hey, we know the gatekeepers. We hang out at the gate, right? They tell them, the gatekeepers related the information to the king, hey, there's great news. They've discovered the uh, plunder from the Arameans. The king says, that's the trick. This is the trick. The Arameans are hiding in the field. They want us to come out because they know we're hungry. We're going we're to be forced out because of our hunger, and they're going to capture us when we get out there. <clears throat> but he decides to send a search party out to check out the validity of the story. Sure enough, it's true. They find it's true. They plunder the Aramaeans. They get all this food. They get all this valuable wealth. And as a result, two promises of God's word come true, just like Elijah said. Look at verse 16. So the people went out and plundered the camp of the Aramaeans. Then a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel, two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king appointed the royal officer on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate, but the people trampled on him at the gate. 
and he died just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. It happened just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, two measures of barley for a shekel and a measure of fine flour for a shekel will be sold tomorrow about this time at the gate of Samaria. Then the royal officer answered the man of God and said, Now behold, if the Lord should make windows of heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, Behold, you'll see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled on him at the gate, and he died. So you have these two promises come true. Food becomes uh, prominent, available again. Prices are stabilized. Verse 17 is kind of a, mar a mob starving to death at the gate trying to get food, probably, and they trample the guy who didn't believe the word of God. They trample him to death. So both promises come true. Word of God comes true. You know, this word of God that promises both hope and judgment, both, uh, both good and evil, both grace and wrath is not to be taken lightly, to be taken seriously. They will, the word of God will come true. The promises will come true. And the unbelief of people does not detract it from, from its root truthfulness, by the way. People say, I don't believe that. Well, it doesn't detract from the truthfulness of God's word. It doesn't matter what they say. The material. These promises like this, you see them throughout the Old Testament. They are given one day, many times you have a promise in the Old Testament, given one day and fulfilled in a few hours, or the next day, or a few years later. But other promises are long-range, covering several centuries, haven't even been fulfilled to this day. But these shorter promises that have been fulfilled are an indication that the, old, the later ones will be fulfilled. And we, can, we can look forward to that. So you have divine intervention and human deliverance. The Lord intervenes in our lives. He delivers us even when we cannot deliver ourselves. The greatest deliverance, by the way, is provided by Christ who died on the cross for desperate sinners just like us. You know, we get ourselves in the biggest messes, don't we? Big messes. Messes that only God can deliver us from. And the words of King Jehoram come to mind. If the Lord does not help you, from where shall I help you? Only God can help. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll close with this, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is the uh, section Stephen read tonight. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 11. Paul speaks to the issue of deliverance. Paul was not sinning against God. Paul was not desperate because of his sin, although he was desperate because of his sin, or he was a great sinner, he says, the chief of sinners, and God delivered him from that. But this is another kind of deliverance. 2 Corinthians 1.8, it says, Paul says, We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. We were desperate, so that we despaired even of life. <clears throat> Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, <clears throat> and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. You also join him in helping us through our prayers, so that thanks may be given <clears throat> by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through, through the prayers of many. Now, we don't know the circumstances that Paul was in here, but he was in desperate circumstances, so desperate, they even despaired of life. When do you see Paul saying, I despaired of life? You don't see that in the New Testament. But here he says that we even despaired of life itself. He thought he was going to die. Things were so bad, but unlike King Jehoram, these circumstances drove him not away from the Lord, but to the Lord, as our circumstances of desperation should drive us to the Lord, by the way, not away from him. Other believers can help by praying. King Jehoram says, I can't help you at all. But we can help by praying for people, right? 
like Paul says here. But the point is this I'm trying to make. The point is this. There is only one deliverer ultimately. Who is that? That's the Lord, right? He is the deliverer, the only one that can truly deliver us from our sins, from our desperate circumstances that we find ourselves in, from all kinds of ills and troubles. And he is the one, Paul says, on whom we have set our hope. Verse 9 again. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that, so that we could not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And we need to do the same. Trust in our great deliverer because he alone can save us from any and all desperation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we are grateful as we look again in your word to know that uh, it's always a great thing to be, able, to be able to exalt you. And we pray that you would be exalted tonight in, the, in this uh, word that we've heard in this message. We pray that we look to you for our deliverance, Lord, in all areas of life. Father, we know we have to trust in you for everything. Uh, we get ourselves into such big problems and big messes.